X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Thursday, May 13th. Today, back in the day on May 13th, 1854, Charity Lamb murdered her husband, which would ultimately make her the first woman convicted of murder in the Oregon Territory. In the immediate aftermath, newspapers hailed the crime as cold-blooded and atrocious, calling it a revolting murder and drawing sympathy for her husband. But the truth proved to be more complicated. It turns out her husband was frequently cruel and often threatened her. Her defense attorney argued that Charity's actions were driven by self-defense or a level of fear so extreme that it bordered on insane. Ultimately, though, Charity was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to a lifetime of hard labor. She died in Southeast Portland's Hawthorne Insane Asylum in 1879. And today, back in the day, on May 13, 1846, the United States declared war against Mexico. The battle was primarily over Texas, which was heavily disputed territory between these nations. Prior to the declaration, U.S. President Polk sent troops to the area with the intention to lure Mexican troops into firing the first bullet. The plan worked, and thus began the Mexican-American War. Ultimately, U.S. troops occupied much more territory than Texas alone, going so far as to march on Mexico City. The war concluded in 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which established the U.S.-Mexican border at the Rio Grande. However, the ethical implications of the war, especially how it began, mar the victory. And most scholars today view it as directly leading to the American Civil War. Today, back in the day on May 13, 1958, Ben Carlin became the first person to circumnavigate the world by amphibious vehicle. Using a modified Ford GPA he named Half Safe, he and his wife began their journey from Montreal in 1951. All in all, the journey took almost seven years with multiple extended stops for sightseeing and fundraising. Carlin's wife stuck around for much of the journey but decided to go back home in 1954, leaving him to finish the trip alone. By the time he arrived back in Montreal, 63 years ago to the day today, Carlin had traveled over 11,000 miles by sea and 39,000 miles by land. And to this day, he remains the only person to have ever circumnavigated the world by amphibious vehicle. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Brian Oster from Street Roots. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Portland's 2020 housing report shows that residents of color increasingly can't afford to live here. A new report on Portland's housing market was presented to City Council yesterday. It found that the city's housing prices have continued to rise at rates outpacing income growth, particularly for renters of color. The median annual income for an average black household in Portland was $31,538, not enough to afford typical rent in almost any Portland neighborhood. The median income for Latinx households was 52573 
For Native American households, the median was $45,086. Both figures are lower than the income needed to purchase a home in most parts of the city. The report also found that Portland continues to grow in diversity. There are increasing residents of color in the Outer East, Northeast, and Southeast Portland. However, Black residents are the most likely to be priced out of their homes, followed by other residents of color. Commissioner Dan Ryan wrote a foreword for the report, stating, quote, The COVID-19 pandemic has brought unprecedented challenges, exacerbating our housing and homelessness crisis, and deepening race and income disparities. He also writes that the report offers, quote, critical insights into who the housing market is serving and who is being left behind. And your daily dose of data. There were 616 new cases of the coronavirus yesterday. The Oregon Health Authority also reported nine new deaths. The test positivity rate is at 5.5% for the state of Oregon. Some counties are showing higher test positivity, including Lake, Umatilla, Jefferson, Jackson, Deschutes, Wallawa, and Crook counties, which all have 8% or higher test positivity rate. An audit finds Portland rushed COVID-19 relief grants for small businesses last year. A city audit released on Wednesday found that Oregon's largest city failed to create a fair and transparent process for grant selection and did little to protect against the misuse of funds during distribution at the height of the pandemic last year. The audit evaluated the success of Prosper Portland's Small Business Relief Fund, which provided $12.4 million to 1,209 local businesses in two separate rounds. Nearly 13,000 businesses applied for the relief package. Grant distribution was meant to prioritize businesses owned by women and people of color who were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Although the audit confirmed race-based awards, it found that women were not prioritized. Businesses owned by people of color received 89% of the grants, with Black-owned businesses reaping the most benefits. Women received 58%. The audit also found that Prosper Portland did not document the weight of various factors in the selection process. It also found that eligibility criteria was abandoned when it came to businesses in abnormal situations, such as businesses registered as inactive, or businesses that were not registered with the Secretary of State's office until after the application deadline. The audit recommends that Prosper Portland improve standards and adopt clear procedures for future grant programs to ensure that staff implement program requirements during the grant process. The Multnomah County Republican Party recruited a security service associated with the Proud Boys, specifically They made an agreement with a security service run by Daniel Tooze Sr., a member of the Proud Boys. During the past years, Tooze has made a number of posts criticizing Antifa and Black Lives Matter. He also made comments on behalf of the Proud Boys, voicing support and promising protection for the far right. The Multnomah County GOP Secretary, Vice Chairman, and Sergeant at Arms all signed the agreement contracting Daniel Tooze's security force to patrol their meeting at a Northeast Portland church on May 6th. The purpose of the May 6th meeting was for the county GOP to hold a recall vote for their chairman, Stephen Lloyd. 
The recall petition for Lloyd took issue with the chairman's statements promoting diversity within the party and advocating for more publicly accessible meetings. Residents of the neighborhood where the meeting was held complained about the Proud Boys' presence on May 6th. One posted on next door that the patrols were drinking, shouting at each other, shining flashlights into neighbors' homes, harassing people, and displaying weapons. A lack of April showers has drained the water supply in many parts of Oregon. Unusually warm temperatures and a lack of precipitation last month have laid ground for the worst summer drought in decades for much of the state. According to a new report by the Natural Resources Conservation Service of Oregon, snowpack, stream flows, and reservoir levels are all on the decline. While the entire state has registered in the U.S. Drought Monitor as abnormally dry or worse. The most recent water year, which began on October 1st, did not yield the necessary rain and high-altitude snow in most regions for sustainable moisture throughout the summer months. As a result, the report urges water managers and many of the state's basins to begin preparing for significant shortages for the next several months. Governor Kate Brown has already declared drought emergencies in Klamath, Lake, and Jackson counties. Six other counties have requested drought emergency declarations from Governor Brown so far this month. And some good news. Oregon is expected to begin vaccinating 12 to 15-year-olds against COVID-19 starting today. Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen anticipated final approval would be in place from the necessary entities by Wednesday afternoon to begin vaccinations at the state's mass vaccination sites. All patients under 16 will receive the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the first to be approved for use on children. Demand for youth vaccines is expected to be very high, and they will be available in the Portland metro area at the Oregon Convention Center, Portland International Airport, and Hillsborough Stadium. Localized vaccination sites throughout the state, including pediatricians' offices, medical offices, community clinics, and pharmacies, also expect to offer shots. Vaccination sites will require parental's consent for children between the ages of 12 and 14. While Oregon law allows youth 15 and older to consent to vaccinations without parental permission. You can find out more information at 211 locally, as well as the OHSU website. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. Next, we have Street Roots reporter Brian Oster with an in-depth look at House Bill 3187, which aims to create an Oregon Wildlife Council. House Bill 3187 aims to create an Oregon Wildlife Council, but some say that seemingly impartial name is misleading. Here to tell us more is Brian Oster, a reporter from Street Roots. Brian, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Thanks for joining. Uh, Can you tell us what House Bill 3187 would do? Sure. Well, it forms a group called the Oregon Wildlife Council, like you said, And this Wildlife Council would actually be a group of hunters and fishers, as well as people who run hunting and fishing businesses. Now, they'd be getting together to create a pro-hunting marketing campaign across the state of Oregon. And uh, this marketing campaign would be financed by the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. So it's kind of a misnomer. 
it's uh, critics are saying that the title is misleading. Yeah, because the, it's it's not a wildlife council that includes all perspectives on wildlife. It would include the perspectives of hunters. Now, supporters say the idea is to educate the public about how sales of hunting and fishing licenses finance state conservation efforts, which they do. And perhaps not coincidentally, sales of hunting licenses are also in decline. Mm-hmm. So where did this bill come from? Well, there's a group out of state. Uh, there's a nonprofit group in Michigan called the Nimrod Society. And this is the group behind these kind of wildlife councils, which have popped up already in Colorado and Michigan. Now, this group is, uh, is uh, like I said, a nonprofit. Their, their website has these kind of right-wing Christian overtones, and their stated mission is to, quote, facilitate programs to educate the general public on the positive role anglers and hunters play in society through accurate and factual education and media programs, end quote. So this group in Michigan, they say basically that it's time for hunters to fight back against animal rights people and anti-hunting groups who they say use mass media and skewed data to influence the public. So they've, got, they've basically got this program that walks hunters through step-by-step step how to start a quote-unquote wildlife council in your state to beat the anti-hunting mass media bad guys at their own game. It's, it's interesting, Bedfellows, because uh, the organizations like Ducks Unlimited and other hunting societies have been instrumental in uh, conservation uh, efforts. Um, but are there uh, uh, true conservationists, uh, if you will, in, involved in this bill or in this process? I think the people the, the people that we've spoken to that are behind the bill certainly seem to be adamant and heartfelt conservationists, as well as being hunters and fishers. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of overlap between those communities. Uh, hunters, uh, hunters are, in many instances, avid conservationists. And, uh, and it's also true that, you know, they do have a point that hunting license sales do in fact finance state conservation, but the, the bill, the council leaves out conservationists who are not hunters. And so the people kind of speaking up to criticize the bill or, or try to call it into a, into the light of day, uh, seem to be non-hunting conservationists, not necessarily anti-hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, actually, some of some of the critics of the bill are um, fishing concert. There's a fishing conservation group, so um, that's kind of where the rift lies. It's created this rift between kind of uh, conservation hunters and then non-hunting conservationists who feel that this bill does not uh, represent conservationists and has a misleading title. Is this bill an end run into uh, gun rights uh, advocacy? Well, it's hard to say. We we didn't find anything that necessarily uh, tied it to that. Okay. But hunting rights, certainly. So maybe peripherally, 
you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think the point is for the the hunting lobbyists who are behind the bill, they want to get a pro-hunting message to Oregonians, and they want to sway public opinion in favor of hunting and fishing. And they want to do that through uh, this media campaign. So, you you know, it's, it's possible that there's a connection there to um, gun rights, but it's I, I would say that might be a bit of a reach, or that's that's a connection that we didn't find. Okay, that's, that's just my own personal paranoia then. <laughs> Can uh, you give us a, a broader picture of what hunting and fishing industry looks like in Oregon? Yeah, it's a it's a big industry. Um, the hunting and fishing industry is, uh, it, you know, it generates about six hundred twenty-two million dollars in Oregon uh, per year. And which uh, an offset of that is $27 million in state and local taxes. Um, now, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, they expect that over the course of the next two years, they've budgeted for $128.5 million in hunting license sales and fishing license sales. Now, that $128.5 million that they're going to get from selling licenses um, a lot of that is going to go to, uh, you know, fish hatcheries and uh, other forms of wildlife conservation, as well as paying uh, the Oregon State Police to enforce state conservation laws. So it's a big business, uh, but it's it's a business that's in decline over recent decades as well. What what does the public support for hunting and fishing in Oregon look like? It's definitely changing, and. And the people that we spoke to who support the bill, they recognize that public perception of hunting is changing. You know, um, it's public support for hunting and fishing has has been in decline. And from from testimony that I've read and people that we spoke to at Street Roots, it seems that, you know, a lot of people, it's not so much that they're anti-hunting, it's that they recognize that Oregonians have different ways of enjoying wildlife nowadays and Mm -hmm. usually it involves keeping the wildlife alive more and more so uh you know of course people bird watchers and and so forth you know they would want to be represented by a wildlife council as well Mm -hmm. yeah this is julia and andy and we're speaking with brian oster from street roots about the proposed oregon wildlife council uh, what effect did the coronavirus pandemic have on the hunting and fishing industry? Uh, well, it, it sort of it gave an unprecedented spike in the sales of hunting and fishing licenses, um, which, as I said, have been in decline, sort of slow, steady decline since the early 80s. And then in 2020, there was a big, a big spike in um, sales because people, you know, wanted to be able to socially distance and do outdoor activities. And so a lot more people went hunting in Oregon last year compared to previous years. And interestingly, there was a considerable spike in out-of-state hunters coming to Oregon last year to hunt. Um, there were about 30,000 more out-of-state hunters last year getting licenses and crossing into Oregon 
to hunt compared to the year before 2019. What what was driving uh, out of state uh, hunters? Their cars, obviously, but what was <laughs> <laughs> <Their> cars? <yeah. laughs> uh, we we don't know where that came from. Huh. Um, we it's it's an unprecedented number. The total number of out of state hunters was uh, forty over forty eight thousand compared to eighteen thousand in that's, 2019 now the the only explanation that we have from the data that we got is the coronavirus yeah but but why such a bigger percentage of the hmm. the the hunters would be from out of state last year isn't entirely clear at this point so at the end of the day would a marketing campaign for hunting and fishing fishing industries in oregon help oregon wildlife well, we can look to Colorado and Michigan for that because uh, a similar bill has already passed in Colorado and in Michigan, and they've been running these marketing campaigns for years, long enough to do follow-up research about the campaigns. And when you look at the research that they've done for the Colorado Wildlife Council and the Michigan Wildlife Council, you know, quote-unquote Wildlife Council, their pro-hunting ads um, have sometimes been very popular and their, and their market research is, is exactly that. It's market research. It's not biological research. They're going out to survey people about, do you remember the ads that we ran? Did you think they were funny? Um, do you know who the Colorado Wildlife Council is? Do you support hunting and fishing? Um, it has nothing to do with wildlife. Hmm. So th- there seems to be very little research about any impact at all that these campaigns may or may not have had on wildlife. That seems to be all about uh, self-serving. Like, have let's create this wildlife council, and then let's ask people if they support the wildlife council that we just created. That's the impression given by the market research um, that that we read. Huh. <laughs> Well, uh, this is fascinating, and I just can't get over the the name uh, Nimrod, uh, famously a, a biblical hunter. <laughs> but I just think of of Elmer Fudd, uh, of course. Um, so, uh, Brian, what else is in uh, this week's street routes that you'd like to share? Oh, there is. Um, there are going to be several good articles. Uh, we have a feature on farm workers who are speaking out about overtime pay. Um, there's uh, an article about police street response and um, uh, the, the sort of the push to expand that. And um, there's going to be another article about Measure 11, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, in essence a continuation of the legacy of slavery. So there's going to be a lot to look at in this in this week's issue. Well, thank you for uh, for sharing with us this morning. Uh, your article about the Oregon Wildlife Council is in this week's Street Roots, which is available from your local vendor. Brian Oster, thank you for joining us. Thanks again. You got it. Thanks to Brian for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and sharing with friends. And... Thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.